Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I am luckily joined by Jared Antflick, a consultant sports physiotherapist who has a wealth of experience working and consulting to athletes or teams across the English Premier League, Premiership Rugby, multiple NBA teams, British athletics, and more. He's the director and founder of Total Performance, a consultant at the Fortius Clinic in London, and in today's episode, we will be focusing on his specialist approach to managing athletic tendons. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. Since its creation, the Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field-based Nordic hamstring force output. Combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualization, and cloud analytics, the Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train hamstring strength and imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, vodperformance.com. Topically for today's episode, I'd like to draw attention to a study that is currently being completed by Nicholas Cross, Jill Cook, Craig Purdom, Ebony Rio, and Christian Bonello. They are aiming to establish the key clinical questions and tests that physios use during clinical exams of Achilles tendinopathies and are looking for physios globally to complete a survey that will help their work. I will link this survey in this episode's show notes. So if you're a physio and you've got a minute, then please, please help them out. Anyway, let's get stuck into today's episode and conversation between myself and Jared Antflick. Jared, welcome to the show. It's, uh, it's great to have you on, mate. How are you? Thanks, Andy. Yeah, I'm very well, thanks, in these very unusual times. Just to give the listeners a little bit of uh, context and background information, would you be able to tell us what you've done and where you've been and kind of bring us through your career to the current day? Sure. Um, so I started originally in Sydney. Um, I did a Bachelor of Health Science at the University of Technology of Sydney. Then I went back to university and did a Bachelor of Applied Science in Physio. And then I went back again and did a, a sports master's at La Trobe. And then more recently, I have been accepted to do my PhD at Imperial College London with Professor Anthony Bull, who's the head of the bioengineering department, and Professor Peter Magnuson, who is the most prolific, one of the most prolific uh, tendon researchers uh, that's been published. So that was quite a quite an honour to be uh, to be able to do that with uh, Professor Magnuson, and uh, very much uh, I start on Monday, so that'll be a, an interesting journey for the next four years. And what kind of um, sports have you been working with? Uh, I guess not only recently, but uh, over your kind of career span. So I started in rugby, rugby union and rugby league in Sydney. And then I moved to the United Kingdom and I worked in track and field for a number of years uh, here and in the United States. Uh, and since then, you know, uh, Premier League football, Premier League or Premiership rugby, uh, track and field still, basketball in the United States and then cricket and, you know, basically any, any sports with, with tendinopathy. And I know you're, you're you've, you've kind of self-professed to be this already. Uh, I'm going to call you a tender nerd if you, if you don't find that offensive. We, um, we have a small group called the, the Tendon Geeks. Um, and so I'm not offended by it whatsoever. <laughs> and um, just to kind of provide some context, what problems or environments or discoveries kind of sparked your interest in tendons? What kind of led you personally to go down that route? 
Um, it's a great question. I, I started off when I first came to London working at Pure Sports Medicine in Kensington, and I worked with Dr. Lorenzo Maschi, who, um, if, if you read research, then you would know Lorenzo has published quite a bit of work with Professor Alfredson. And I, it just sparked my interest. I used to see a lot of tendons with him, and I found it fascinating. Um, and then moving across to track and field, it's quite a, quite a prevalent uh, disease or condition in track and field. And so it's sort of just sort of developed develop from there. And what does your kind of, just so that uh, listeners have got a bit of context also, just on your, your, I guess, your current activities, what does your current work and uh, sort of uh, employment roles, what, what does that look like for you currently? So in a normal, normal environment, COVID excluded, um, I, I do a, a clinic at the 40th Clinic. At, uh, I work at both King William Street and Fitzharding Street, and I do at one of those clinics. I do a, a joint MDT with Dr. John Houghton, um, and we see all manner of Achilles and patella tendons. I do two and a half day. I did two half days of general practice at uh, just a normal clinic in uh, in Chelsea called Complete Physio. And then I consult. Uh, so I go to different sporting teams, whether it be here in England, and I just got back from a morning at a, at a football club to uh, the United States where I go to NBA and more recently NFL teams and help them with tendon issues and uh, problem solving and, and things like that. And we've had Ebony Rio on the podcast and uh, I also did a tendon panel with Mark Young, Karen Silbernackle uh, and Matt Tuttle and I'm sure amongst those three you know uh, at least one of them. But yeah. um, across some of the episodes there's been a decent amount of uh, background discussion on managing problematic tendons and that's particularly been around getting on top of uh, athlete or patient pain um, but let's let's start with the end in mind and when you're working with varying teams and athletes what does a healthy tendon look like to you or how does it function um, to the standards that you work with in elite sport and I, I know that's a little bit contextual to the sport and the league but um, you know what does the the optimal state of a tendon look like for you so I think obviously it would be a pain-free tendon a tendon that can store and release energy in a, in a fast and effective manner. Um, you know, we could look at it from an end-stage function. We can also look at it from an imaging perspective. And I might just uh, lead off with the imaging perspective. And I think, you know, Sean McAuliffe, who did his PhD a couple of years ago, did a systematic review and looked at the effect of hypochoic regions or dark areas under normal grayscale ultrasound and found that essentially for Achilles and patella tendons, those patients or those tendons that had regions of hypoechogenicity were five times had it, were at a five times greater risk of developing symptoms. So I think from you know uh, an imaging perspective, we'd want ideally a perfect tendon would be you know no hypochoic regions under UTC, which is a, an imaging device that I use that I hopefully that hopefully you will ask some questions about. You would see mostly, you know, a high ratio of intact and aligned, which is color coded as green. Um, that's from a from a normal imaging perspective. From a function perspective, ideally, we'd want uh, a sound strength base, and the the base uh, the base really means that somebody, for example, for an Achilles in a single leg seated ISO test, would be able to produce net peak verticals of twice minimum their body weight ideally greater than that plyometrically um so from a more moving towards more function 
that essentially they'd potentially have in a drop jump RSI is greater than 2 to 2.5, short contact times of about 200 milliseconds. Um, and then if we were going to talk about patella tendons, um, looking at sort of some of the research, we'd, we'd be really comfortable with short eccentric durations, um, uh, sort of less than 300 milliseconds, or an eccentric D-cell phase duration, which is some work that I've been doing with Dr. Daniel Cohen in elite volleyball, looking at, you know, certain metrics within or reduced timeframes within that. And, and essentially, you know, we're looking for um, a faster, efficient tendon. Um, you know, the goal is to be efficient um, and to achieve a certain jump height, which is not a metric that I'm that interested in when I'm using force platforms. But I'm looking for an athlete to be able to generate um, a, a similar jump height with a shorter uh, contraction time um, and essentially, you know, greater rates of force development, which is, you know, the steepness of a force time curve. Got you. And we can probably get onto the clinical diagnosis shortly and we'll definitely hit UTC a little bit more. But how do you kind of assess the the state of the tendon? I guess from a um, more of a clinical standpoint on this one and, and also the potential risk factors for developing a problem. So age is very important. The older the, the patient or athlete, uh, the higher the risk is for tendinopathy. Uh, their intensity and frequency of exercise, elite versus your recreational runner or your recreational football player. Um, their chronicity of load is very important. Have they had um, a long enough preseason uh, to build up some chronicity in their um, in their loading rates? Uh, whether they've changed uh, position on the field, uh, have they been a centre back or are they now a roaming midfielder that's you know increased twenty thirty percent their amount of distance covered, or have they moved to a different club with different coaching techniques and training methods? Uh, some new uh, new coaches might want to do more plyo-based uh, um, training, accelerations, decelerations. Another important factor is the surface on which the athlete trains on. Uh, basketball obviously is very consistent, but um, football have different kinds of pitches, um, uh, whether it be a, a full grass or a synthetic um, uh, 3G pitch. Um, whether they're playing indoors or outdoors. Um, another really important factor is their strength program, which links in with their chronicity of load, but their strength program, we know that uh, strength and, and uh, regular strength work is prophylactic uh, for developing tendon problems. Um, and what are the kinds of their strength program? Is it just a, an isometric type program or is it um, is it a... Um, is it you know a heavy slow resistance program? Have they developed uh, through different stages um, of the strength program to a plyo based program? Uh, really important is their history of tendinopathy. We know the research is very clear that it's a, a non modifiable. If you've had a previous history of tendinopathy, then you are more likely to have it. And is that because you know they haven't finished their rehab, or is it just because it's one of those risk factors that you know patients that have tendinopathy are more likely to get it again? Calf injuries and quad injuries are really important. So athletes that have had salial tears, um, Carl's Pedred has done some really interesting work on salius injuries and then medial and lateral um, salial um, tendons. Um, in those athletes that have had calf injuries generally uh, can be more susceptible to tendinopathy. 
with patella tendons, have they had a ACL reconstruction? BTBs or bone-to-bone reconstructions are more likely to develop patella tendinopathy um, throughout their rehab and and in their um, and throughout their career. Um, interesting one is you know, a hormone change in hormone profile. You know, I do see your general population, and sometimes I see postmenopausal women. Um, those are very very difficult tendons to treat. Um, and then sort of in my history, last but not least, is their general health. Is there a family history of inflammatory conditions, you know, skin conditions such as eczema or gout or diabetes? Those, those tendons are very hard to manage and they are predisposed people to it. You know, moving on, um, assessing a tendon. So when I'm looking at an Achilles problem, I'm looking at their calf girth, you know, whether they've got equivocal calf, calf girth, soleus and gastrox. And this is just, you know, in, in clinic, this is not, you know, being able to use a seated calf raise test. Um, but when I'm looking at girth, I'm looking at a standing double leg and then a single leg position. Really interesting is calf raise height. Um, Karen Silbernagel in 2012 um, used uh, a test in her um, rupture repairs um, where she tapes a, um, a tape measure to the back of the heel and she watches people go up. And I think that's a really clever and easy way to measure height. I don't usually do that. I just eyeball it, but it's interesting. Do they have good calf range of motion um, or ankle dorsiflexion range? Um, those that are really, really stiff potentially. Um, there was a Brazilian group that looked at the incidence or the likelihood increases with reduced calf range of movement to an increased incidence of patella tendinopathy in volleyballers. Um, first MTP range of movement. Um, a lot of my footballers, they have been kicking a football around a lot and they generally have some level of arthritic change in their first MTP. Whether there's mobility of their subtalar joint, um, lots of subtalar joint mobility increases potentially the torsional demands of the Achilles. Um, you know, the Achilles is a plantar flexor dorsiflexor, and yes, I understand that there is rotation of the fibers from proximal to distal, but when you have, you know, an increased subtalar joint mobility, you're asking the Achilles tendon to do more than just plantar flex and, um, and, and push off. Um, when I'm looking at a little bit more calf function, I'm interested to know, you know, can they calf raise full height with straight knee? Um, and can they, you know, do they have the ability to, to, to calf raise well? And can they do a lot of volume of it? I know that EIS looked at, they had benchmarked some of their elite running sport athletes that they had to get over 25 calf raises off a step very, very slowly. Um, one of my really interesting tests, and it's again, just an eyeball test, but it's a reactivity test on a single leg hop, you know, can they hop and do they maintain that stiffness in, in, the in the lower limb, um, or are they yielding? Does their heel get close to hitting the floor? And you'll find that, you know, you lose the ability to generate stiffness because of tendinopathy. And so those that have tendinopathy or have had it for a period of time, they lose their stiffness, uh, the mechanical property of stiffness, and they'll yield. Um, you know, with the patella tendon, can they squat, single leg squat, any pain associated with that? Is there, do they have a good lunge technique, but can they, do they have pain with their, with any lunging? Um, and with, you know, a hop and hold, um, same as with an Achilles tendon, uh, patella tendon, I get them to hop, I'll get them to hop forward and can they hop and hold that and do they have equivocal range in that squat 
and can they you know, can they you know create that stiffness in that in the in the knee area um i usually will hold their hand interestingly enough just because it's less about balance and more about um you know their, their function in the lower limb and then we as part of an assessment we'll do um ultrasound um normal grayscale and color doppler and then follow it up with the utc that makes sense let's get into utc we've kind of touched on it a little bit so far without going into it um you know utc is not a brand new thing but it's still in some relative infancy at least for its utility or commonality in sport you've uh, you've definitely completed more utc scans than anybody that i can think of what i'm interested to know is is there any kind of common misconceptions or questions that you've fielded on utc that i guess pulling upon your you know your vast user experience that you know you can counter or provide some pragmatic insight on yeah i mean there's, there is the big debate about structure versus pain, and we all know that structure and pain don't really correlate. And I always pose this uh, uh, retort, which is normal tendons shouldn't be painful. Um, and I think that's very clear that if I scan somebody that has changes within their tendon and they have pain, that is most likely the source of it. Um, and I think you know, when we when we have these discussions about imaging versus not imaging, one of the biggest things that I think are is left behind, and one of the one of the interesting arguments that is put forward is well, people that have lumbar spine disdegeneration, you know, they can be asymptomatic and still play at a high level, and that's entirely correct. The only the only caveat to that is is that forces that are uh, that undergo uh, that travel that far or or that attenuate all the way up to the to the lumbar spine are significantly lower than what they would be in the Achilles tendon. Um, the Achilles tendon generally is the first point of contact. It is they it is the first um, you know structure that absorbs and dissipates force. Um, and so the loads are unbelievably high. And if we look at um, Comey's work, so Comey nineteen ninety. And, you know, we understand that the Achilles tendon undergoes these, you know, drastically high loads, which is, cannot, be same, cannot be said for the lumbar spine. And so that's an argument that I, I kind of like to, uh, I, I like to discuss and, and we look further into and there's some interesting research that's coming out um, in regards to the structure of Achilles tendons. You know, a, a normal tendon, and this was sort of a misconception that's been uh, that's been put in the forefront of science for some time. Normal tendons don't rupture, and you know, I've unfortunately had the pleasure of monitoring uh, a tendon that uh, has ruptured, um, and it was very clear uh, through the preceding uh, six to eight weeks that the tendon was uh, was not adapting to playing loads. And that it did, in fact, rupture. Um, but I think it's how you use the device. Um, and for me, I use UTC for the subtle diagnoses um, that we just talked about before, whether it's superficial surface of the tendon, if there's a small tear, if it's paratendinopathy, plantaris-related, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also for my sporting populations, it's a nice way to monitor the tendons, particularly in these unusual times where ramp-ups uh, have been quite quick, 
Um, there's no chronic loading or very little chronic loading and the Achilles tendon needs that chronic loading. And we know that tendons do take a lot longer to change their mechanical properties. The stiffness and strain rates reduce very quickly with unloading. Unfortunately, and conversely, they don't adapt as quickly as they lose. So um, I use UTC to monitor these very small-scale changes within the tendon. And I don't think we're ever going to, no one's ever really going to agree imaging versus not imaging. But I think, you know, using the device to stratify risk or at least identify those athletes that do have hypoechoic regions and going back to Sean's uh, systematic review, that hypoechoic lesions within the Achilles tendon particularly has a higher relative risk of developing symptoms and, you know, identifying those athletes and stratifying them into let's monitor or let's monitor and we need to reduce whether it be training loads or playing minutes to prevent symptoms whether they be small or or large-scale catastrophic injuries you know i think is i think is really important um the information is fed to the medical and performance teams and they deal with uh, the dissemination of that information to players and coaches and, and performance teams in the way that they see best because they are the people that work with these players and and support staff more than I. Um, and I think that's a for me I've sort of I've, I've stuck to that way of dealing with it, um, dealing with the information because we all know that how we perceive information is very important. And there is an effect, psychological effect on. Um, on players' state of well-being and patients' state of well-being um, when it comes to what the imaging suggests. So from my perspective, you know, it's it's really about keeping an eye on these tendons, stratifying them, <clears throat> letting them do what they need to do, but stepping in if I see changes within the echo profile, is what I call it, uh, that are deleterious, that are, you know, potentially going to cause symptoms or worse it's just staying on imaging um you know obviously besides what utc actually gives you in terms of details and information do you find that um just as a technique for how you collect on it versus um maybe the the sort of variation or skill that normal ultrasound has do you find that the sort of the more automatic way that a utc scanner can actually be applied um also just suits it to being better for monitoring because you get that consistency and maybe less error in the collection? I agree 100%. It's a very standardized way of, of uh, collecting scans. Uh, I can teach somebody in an hour to physically do a scan. That's not the difficult part. Um, and you're right, it, it, it standardizes, and I'm, I'm not a salesperson for UTC, but I do have a UTC device, but it, it standardizes for tilt and, and position of the probe and the speed at which you collect and you know, the settings are fixed. You don't fiddle with them. Um, and so you're right, it, it does provide a standardized way with which to collect information, more so than Grayscale has ever been able to do. Um, you can, you know, use the same Grayscale ultrasound scanner and scan somebody um, in within a few weeks of each other. And it's very hard to disseminate whether there's been an improvement or a change. Um uh, in the echo profile or the structure of that tendon, whereas UTC does allow for that standardization. I, I have a way to run code over the um, the results that get exported to Excel, um, and it basically allows me to graph a player's 
profile over however many scans I've got, um, which could be in, you know, some teams I work with for six years. Uh, I have six years times five. I have 30 some odd paired scans of Achilles and, and patella tendons, and we can look at how that uh, changes over a season. Which sounds unbelievably efficient, actually, as well, just, you know, I guess for the team, but also for you not having to sort through hundreds of grayscale images and, and report them essentially as well. Exactly. Um, we'll get on to creating, I guess, a return to play criteria, but, uh, you know, just knowing a little bit from afar about what you do, how do you kind of use kinematics and kinetics to answer questions when you go into, say, a performance environment? So I use, uh, I have my own Burtek plates. I also have some Forstex uh, plates from Valve. Um, and then I connect it with Naraxon, which I find extremely efficient. Um, the gold standard, obviously, is Viacom, uh, but myself and Dr. Chris Richter, who was at SSC, um, we used to set up a, a Viacom lab, and we had Viacom send us you know, 12 to 14 camera system, and we would spend two days setting it up, and the time to collect was 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 quite difficult, markering up, and I use Naraxon. Now, it's a very, very good surrogate. Um, it allows us to collect information on players, how they're functioning, um, at whether they're healthy or rehabbing. And so in answer to your question, um, you know, for an Achilles repair, for example, you know, are they demonstrating, if we're just talking kinetics, are they demonstrating equivocal force? Are they generating enough force? And it might just be that we do a seated ISO test um, using a, um, a, an ISO rig on force platforms, are they generating enough force? And like I said to you before, you know, ideally these athletes single leg are generating twice their body weight, if not three times. And when we go back to Pavo Comey, you know, he he looked at um, uh, the forces involved at high speed sprinting, and he looked at himself actually, and he put a buckle uh, transducer in his Achilles tendon and sprinted, and he got up to six meters per second, and he found this, that. It was about nine kilonewtons of force per limb intratendinously. So that, that's a lot of force trying to pull the tendon apart. So kinetically, I need some of these players to generate peak forces. And I've, I've never been one to have a, a player or a patient come in and the diagnosis was is they're too strong. That's never on the list. So that's the kinetic side of it. Improving their baseline strength is is pivotal and then how do they move with it so an achilles repair is a is a great example do they have enough force can they utilize that force through range they might be restricted because they don't have enough range through that achilles but then what else do they do further up the chain and um you know i've seen achilles repairs because i see a lot of them you know we see this compensatory mechanism which is more knee valgus um, limited knee flexion on that side because obviously they can't get over the knee, more pronation through the foot, um, and they end up listing a little bit, so they might flex more through the hip um, and side flex over to that side because they can't absorb and they can't generate force uh, in an efficient way because they've got limited range from potentially an Achilles repair or may not, might not even be a tendon. It might be ankle restriction and and so I use kinetics and kinematics to help with rehabbing athletes, number one. But two, I use it to identify those athletes 
um, you, using some of the recent research from, say, for example, Tim Hewitt. Um, and we look at those athletes that are potential risks for how they move of damaging knee ligaments or, you know, whether they're efficient movers. Um, and what I've found is, you know, when you get to about seven feet tall, you move a little bit differently to when you're six feet tall. So they're very interesting athletes to, to review. And, and I've seen some very tall athletes in the past and some move surprisingly well and some unfortunately don't. Um, but I, I use kinetics and kinematics to identify those discrepancies, those movement uh, patterns that obviously from the research suggest that aren't ideal. And we know that from the research that it's not just one particular thing. It's not just knee valgus. You know, it's, you know, if we want to look at some of Tim Hewitt's work, it's, I mean, Crosshog's work, it's, you know, uh, an everted foot, knee valgus, an extended hip poor trunk control, you know, these things are uh, are red flags for potentially an athlete that might do uh, injury to their knee. And I think this will, I think what we're talking about now will probably feed into this next question nicely. Um, You know, we started talking about what does a healthy or high performing tendon look like and function like. Um, And I guess what I'd like to do is try and uncover your thought processes or perspectives on return to play criteria. I know this might overlap with what we've already been talking about, but I'm wondering if you're able to tease out, uh, I guess, novel or um, really helpful things that you've you've found in your approach to return to play criteria, um, perhaps for the clinician who's got um, far less expertise on a tendon. Yeah, I think I like to work backwards. Interestingly, I, I like to understand what the sport is and what the requirements are. And there's sports that I don't know a ton about, NFL being one of them. So when I see NFL players, I, I kind of ask their position and then I have to ask a lot of questions around it because I don't know what a defensive lineman or a safety or, pardon my ignorance, but some, what some of the other players actually do. But it's interesting to work. Well, I, I find it helpful to work backwards from what the end stage is. Now, in elite sport, it's very easy to find out where an athlete needs to be based on if they have any benchmark data. And I think that's very important, understanding what the athlete was prior to injury. And not every team has one. And your average Joe or Janet that comes in off the street might not necessarily have any benchmark data. But understanding what they want to do. Is it that they want to sprint? Is it that they want to hurdle? Is it just that they want to run five kilometers two, three times a week? You know, understanding what the requirements are on the Achilles tendon or the patella tendon, I think is quite important. And then understanding that, understanding that the, there is a base and the base of the pyramid really is strength. Once you move past that, we start to look towards, you know, what the requirements are for a tendon, you know, and, and Karen Silbernagel's group published some really interesting work um, looking at lunging and calf raising and hopping. And 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 having looked at um, Pavos's Comey's work in 1990, I know what the tendon can do. You know, I'm, I'm fully aware of what a really healthy, normal Achilles tendon can do. But but unfortunately, some of the you know, rehab programs that are out there don't really address some of these requirements. And so just doing a single leg bodyweight calf raise or a weighted 10 kilo single leg bodyweight calf raise or just a bodyweight squat or a decline bodyweight squat for a patella tendon, it doesn't, even for your average five kilometer runner twice a week, it doesn't, it doesn't build capacity. It doesn't teach the tendon to be an energy storing and releasing 
uh, organ, we have to understand that these tendons, Achilles and patella is what I'm referring to mainly, they are very complex. We don't know enough about them, but we're beginning to understand more. But we do know that they undergo huge loads. So it's preparing the tendon for what they need to do. And I'm sure your previous speakers have have banged on about that. But, you know, where I think athletes and your general population need to move towards is is not just banging on strength-wise for, you know, three months. It's about introducing some um, energy storage or stretch shortening cycle type loading and it's going from slow to fast and Eamon Flanagan uh, has given some you know he's done his PhD on looking at drop jump and RSI and some other interesting metrics around SSC type loading which I think is very clever you know he's broken down some of the slower um, plyometric type exercises which you would consider to be a counter movement jump because you have more joints involved versus just ankle dominant type exercises and you know if i'm rehabbing an achilles tendon i need them to be able to have very short contact times you know these less than 200 milliseconds you know super fast off the ground and we see those in track and field athletes particularly particularly sprinters and jumpers um but it's about building up towards that you know asking a patient that is now two weeks into a rehab program to start hopping and bounding is quite unrealistic Obviously, if they're pain-free and they've, they have a decent base of strength, then it's acceptable, particularly in elite populations. But in the general population, quite often people hold on to their tendinopathy for some time. And, and I have the pleasure of seeing tendons that have been painful. And I saw a gentleman some time ago who had Achilles pain for 22 years. Um, and they always have a strength deficit, and that's not going to be fixed in two weeks. So, you know, as, as all of inverted commas gurus which i am not one have said you know address look at your patient and look at what their requirements are and that's couldn't be said any clearer you know your elite functioning sprinter who has an acute episode of achilles problems you know chances are that you could probably get them going quite quickly assuming it's not something you know that there's a a large structural change to within the tendon but you know, those that have had tendon pain for a long time, they have these deficits. Their ability to generate forces are low. Their ability to gen- generate forces quickly, faster rate type loading, they can't do as well. So it's about, you know, it's it's slow and low. So slow contractions, lower load to start with. And then I like people to go slow and heavy and then building up to fast and heavy. Um, and then you're talking, you know, all kinds of different plyo drills, different kinds of strides and skips and things like that, progressing to cutting, um, decelerating, which is very, very stressful on the patella tendon. You know, the loads are massive. You know, we're talking six times body weight, if not more, depending on um, the, the speed at which they start their cut. So, you know, really looking at, again, as I started with, is looking at where the tendon needs to go and working backwards from there. But their base has to be strength. They have to be progressed, you know, very carefully. And, you know, when I'm talking, when I'm rehabbing patella tendons, I'm talking about, and nothing is better at the moment, is the Consgard, Mads Consgard's work uh, with Professor Magnuson as a supervisor. You know, that's very, very clear that there's sound rationale to the type of loading and why. Um, You know, in regards to pain, pain is personal. 
Um, there are some research. There has been some research out there in regards to analgesic type loading. I think it's been, you know, unfortunately proven that there is no fast, uh, quick fix to tendon pain, and that unfortunately it's just hard graft. And part of my job is to educate not just the the players but the medical teams around it. That unfortunately we may not be able to turn around this tendon because they can't do faster rate loading. They can't decelerate. They can't hop without these, you know, these 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 pain levels or this loss of function performance. Is the other thing is this reduction in performance. The the um, the inability for that athlete to get that extra ten percent or go for that ball that they might have have always been able to get purely because of their tendon pain. So. Like I said, working backwards, a good strength, and then progress them through those, through towards faster rate and sport-specific type um, exercises that are mimicking or getting very close to um, their their sport. You know, whether you're working with an average Joe or you're working in a professional team or with a professional athlete, um, you know, as a physio, you're always under pressure to, as to when that person can return to their activities. Um, you know, you mentioned that too strong is a rare or, or maybe a unicorn problem to have with, when you're dealing with a tendon. And what I'm curious is, if you if you don't have the pre-injury data, are the for you are the body weight uh, related force outputs that you've mentioned uh, during the conversation? Are they you know how much are they idealisms and how much and where are they kind of non-negotiables? I guess is what I'd like to know because I think it's quite common in sport, especially where you can be working with an athlete and uh, get them to a certain point and then sometimes they get kind of pinched back into gameplay again so you know where are the sort of you know we kind of know what's ideal but where's the sort of non-negotiable cutoff for where they achieve it's a great question and, and a lot of elites will t- return back to play even with a little bit of pain and that's acceptable um you know, I think it comes down to these objective assessments. And as as nice as it is for me to have a couple of pairs of force platforms and kinematics and a UTC machine, there is still the ability for people to have a good look at how their athlete is functioning, you know, whether it be using a leg press machine, can they push one and a half times their body weight on a leg press? Knowing what the leg press weighs is also quite important because I have been to clubs before where the leg press weighs itself, the sled, 60 kilos. But understanding that an athlete needs to be able to push one and a half times body weight, if if they can't with raging patellar tendinopathy, chances are they're probably going to relapse. And and it comes down to the question: what what how long do you need? What's the shortest period of time you need this athlete ready? And what's the long term goal? You know, I've had very serious conversations with teams before where I've said the risk is too high for any benefit that you might have. This tendon is not healthy. This athlete's in a lot of pain. And, you know, having to reduce their playing load to put them in a rehab program, working on their strength and building them back up is quite important and just had to be done. Cutoff wise, again, a very difficult question, but, you know, if somebody can't body weight calf raise their own body weight for minimum 25 reps, single leg with a straight leg off a step slowly, that's going to be difficult to get them back without breaking down in the near distant future um can they hop you know hop and skip those things relatively pain-free now 
I'm not an idealist. I, I don't think that everybody should be pain-free before they return to sport. It would be great, but realistically, it's not possible. But can they perform some of the tasks that they're required to do without a spike in pain, whether it be during or the following morning uh, in terms of pain and stiffness? Um, it's about maintaining um, their constant perceived level of pain and their discomfort, but are they able to function with what they've got um, and, you know, whether it be using force platforms and looking at their, you know, if it's a drop jump, their asymmetry, is it a stable asymmetry? Um, are they able to withstand the impact forces and their drive-off forces are equivocal if they have a 50% asymmetry or they're 30%, 20%, 30% down on their previous tests? That's a little bit of a red flag. Um, but... You know, I, I'm not under any delusion that um, players need to return pain-free. They need to be able to function properly um, and, you know, maintain stable, hopefully low levels or no level of pain, but stable levels of pain um, as they play, assuming that their function is very high. Yeah. And, mate, you mentioned at the very beginning that you – um, you're kind of returning or you're going to be doing some academia again. Um, have you got any kind of pubs or projects in the pipeline that people should be aware of or looking out for? Um, yeah, well, I, I've obviously been helping out with the ISTS committee, but that's a large group and that will be interesting um, when that comes out and that's looking at, um, you know, radiolo radiological or ultrasound MRI diagnoses and sort of let's set some in stone because there's a lot out there um, so that's one aspect um, I've been doing some work with Daniel Cohen and a group uh, down in Spain looking at elite volleyballers and hopefully we just had a meeting before hopefully we might have some really good clinical gems um, in terms of using force platforms and a counter movement jump um, potentially um, coming out in next couple of months where we're finishing off writing and um and that should be very interesting um and then phd wise i have questions around um mechanical properties of tendons tendinopathic tendons um structure of tendons uh, potentially using elastography um with utc uh, and force platforms um i've spoken to with peter magnuson for for some time about this trying to tease out some some uh some interesting questions um and yeah i think uh it's a, it's a journey but we'll hopefully fingers crossed things will come Def definitely sounds busy uh where's the best place for people to to follow you and uh, and, and see these things unfold yeah so at jared Amflick is my twitter handle uh, i don't really use instagram I haven't been putting a huge amount on social media as of late because I don't have anything hugely interesting to say along with the uh, COVID problem and politics in the world at the moment. Um, uh, our consulting or my consulting company is Total Dash Performance, uh, which I use to uh, as a vehicle for going to teams and, and reviewing players and teams there. But other than that, um, people can send me a, a Twitter message and, and ask questions and and uh, happy to sit on a call. I often do presentations to teams about rehabbing tendons and and what to look for, what not to look for, and and the culmination of return to play using force platforms. 
Cool. And we'll, we'll link all of your, um, your handles that you just mentioned then in the, uh, in the show notes anyway, so people can easily find them. But Jared, mate, it's good to, um, it's good to catch up with you and thanks very much for coming on the show. It's been, it's been great to hear your insights. I appreciate it. Thanks, Andy. And, uh, thanks for the call and thanks for the listeners. Thank you very much. Big thanks to Jared for coming on the show and sharing the depth of his knowledge on tendons, but also uncovering how he approaches their management, both clinically and in a performance environment. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please hit subscribe to ensure that you automatically catch every episode and don't miss any conversations that we have at Inform Performance. Keep up to date with us by following our social media accounts. Our Instagram account is Inform Performance or our Twitter account is at InformPod. You've been listening to Inform Performance with me, Andy McDonald. Catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.